The scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there are gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and do pray that you would use it now as you have promised to direct us in the truth, to correct us, and to encourage us. We ask that you would so help us by your Holy Spirit to these ends, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good things come in small packages. That's an expression that you may have heard at some point in time, conveying the idea that, well, bigger isn't always better. That someone or something doesn't have to be large in order to be good. You know, at Christmas time, the largest package under the Christmas tree might not be the best present. Better presents might be in smaller boxes, particularly if they're jewelry or something of great value that's small. You know, if a man's wife is petite or small, then it's likely he thinks that good things come in small packages, as he should. And certainly newborn babies fall into this category as well. Well, given that our text this morning is only four verses long, which is also the case for the sixth plague, and I didn't do a word count uh, to break the tie between them, we might be a little disappointed that there isn't more to this account, especially after all the details related to the first two plagues and how some of those that follow also get plenty of press. It's certainly true that there's less text in print for us to consider, But hopefully we won't feel shortchanged after our study of this third plague and that we'll find plenty of instruction and equipping for the life of faith to which we're called in the Lord Jesus Christ and the working out of that faith to his glory. As just stated, this is the third plague and by way of brief reminder, this is the last plague in the first cycle of plagues, plagues one through three, with two cycles remaining in four through six and seven through nine respectively. The tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, stands apart uh, somewhat as the climax of God's war on Egypt. And as we noted in uh, in, in, in past weeks, the cycles of the plagues follow the pattern of the three-decker universe that God has made of, of water, land, and the sky, or the heavens. The Nile and waters of Egypt turning to blood was pretty obvious. Then in the second plague of the frogs, there was a distinct emphasis upon the land of Egypt in verses 5 through 7, with that phrase being used three times within the space of three verses. Also recall that Aaron is the primary actor, the primary doer when it comes to the first three plagues, and how there's a priestly showdown that's taking place in the first cycle, Aaron versus the Egyptian magicians. It's a battle of stewards, after a fashion. And so far, these Egyptian magicians have been able to produce the same miracles as Aaron through their demonic arts, only making things worse for the people of Egypt, which is part of the humor of the text and a demonstration of the stupidity of idolatry. 
Also, you may recall that each of the respective first, second, and third plague cycles in each cycle are introduced in a particular way. Plagues 1, 4, and 7, we're told that Yahweh instructs Moses and Aaron to go and see Pharaoh in the morning or early in the morning. Plagues 2, 5, and 8, Yahweh simply tells Moses, go to Pharaoh. And then with plagues 3, 6, and 9, we simply read of them being enacted. There's no warning, no introduction, nothing. Just just the plague being executed. And that's what we read in verse 16. And said Yahweh to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the land of Egypt, and it will become gnats in all the land of Egypt. Now there's some debate as to what uh, creatures are actually produced, lice, mosquitoes, or gnats. Uh, but gnats is more than adequate and would be referring to a type of gnat uh, that stings, causing a painful irritation of the skin, as well as being able to creep into the eyes and nose. Also, for these tiny pests to be winged makes a lot of sense, given the pattern of some type of sky or atmospheric judgment taking place. Now, let's notice uh, a few details here at the outset. First, remember that Aaron's staff is a sign of his office, to a degree, even overlapping with Moses' staff, which is a a shepherd's tool, uh, that also pictures Israel's calling as shepherds. Still more, don't forget the encounter between Aaron and the magicians back in chapter 7, when Aaron's staff turns into a dragon, and then when the Egyptian sorcerers do the same with theirs, we read that Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. This foreshadows not only Aaron's victory over these magicians, which is further evidenced here in the third plague, but also of the swallowing up of Pharaoh's army that takes place at the Red Sea, and ultimately of Jesus swallowing up of sin and death at the resurrection. So Aaron once again employs this instrument at God's command to bring about this third plague. God chooses to use this tool, this means, for his purposes. Second, notice the progression here from from land to air, that these gnats come from the dust. Where did the frogs come from in the previous plagues? Well, from the river, from the water, and they invaded the land. And now we read of these gnats coming from the land, from the dust, and as flying creatures, this, this is an air invasion of sorts upon the land of Egypt. Also, we should understand that the word for land and earth is that they are the same in the text, and hence the translation I offered a moment ago, demonstrating the continuity of the language. This word, land, earth, is used five times in verses 16 through 17, and the word gnats is used five times in verses 16 through 18. Now, the number five is associated with power in Scripture, and so there may be this this subtle hint of the, the power struggle that's going on here, even as Yahweh is demonstrating his power over the land of Egypt, further answering the question from weeks past, who's got the power? You know, who's in charge? Who's the authority? Verse 17. And they did thus. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the land. And it became gnats on the man and on the cattle. All the dust of the land became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Now, the the last part of the verse is is certainly employing a bit of hyperbole and saying all the dust uh, became gnats, since all the dust would mean, well, all the ground, and then there wouldn't be any ground left. You know, how do you distinguish the dust from the next layer of the earth, so forth? So don't don't get hung up on that too much. But we should should most certainly understand that the text is telling us that the gnats were were numerous. You know, perhaps we are to even think of them as as clouds of, of gnats. 
You know, if you've ever been uh, doing some yard work or been outside on some occasion, uh, maybe you've seen a small swarm of gnats uh, of some kind. Just yesterday, I observed this in our backyard, and I didn't try to count the gnats, but they were flying around in a cloud, uh, and there's maybe a couple feet tall and maybe a foot wide, and of course, was thinking ahead to this, you know, this, this plague today. Well, imagine, imagine that on a much grander scale, and the air just filled with gnats swarming everywhere. As we've noted in the, with the first two plagues, this one also is largely one of inconvenience, making daily life very difficult to manage. And notice what we're told at the beginning of the verse, and they did thus. So clearly, Moses spoke to Aaron, as instructed by Yahweh, and then we read of Aaron obeying that instruction. And you, you can just picture him stretching out his hand uh, with the staff in it, which the text is clear to convey, and which echoes what we read Aaron doing in Plagues 1 and 2, and that he struck the dust of the land. The word struck we've encountered on a number of occasions already. It was used in chapter 2 in relation to the Egyptians striking the Hebrew, and of Moses then striking the Egyptian in turn. It was used in chapter 3 when Yahweh tells Moses at the burning bush, So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. We find it in chapter 5 in relation to the Egyptian taskmasters striking the Egyptian foreman. And most recently on three occasions in chapter 7. In verse 17 of Yahweh stating, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn to blood. Then in verse 20, And did thus Moses and Aaron as commanded Yahweh, and he lifted up the staff and struck the water which was in the Nile before the eyes of Pharaoh, before the eyes of his servants, and was turned all the water which was in the Nile to blood. And then in verse 25, passed seven days after Yahweh had struck the Nile. So this is familiar language to Exodus, even as we'll encounter it again in coming chapters. Aaron strikes the land of Egypt, which may convey the striking of Egypt itself, of striking Pharaoh and the people in this symbolic way. Now, a couple of interesting points to further consider in relation to this verse, and the, and the first has to do with the language of dust of the earth or dust of the land, which makes a couple of significant appearances in Genesis. The first time is in Genesis 13, when after separating from Lot, Yahweh tells Abram, I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your seed also can be counted. And then the phrase is used in chapter 28, when Jacob is at Bethel, and Yahweh says to him, Your seed shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south, and in you and your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And the people of Israel are known as the land people in Scripture. And the nations are the sea people. And we chanted about the sea people in Psalm 65 a little bit ago. Perhaps it's too much of a stretch, but I also wonder if there's another level of imagery in this plague, even of, of Israel's affliction in Egypt, of their being struck by Yahweh's staff, as it were, undergoing his discipline, but then ultimately being victorious over Egypt. Again, perhaps that's too much of a stretch, but... Interesting to think about. But certainly the, the dusty hosts proclaimed to Abram and Jacob find their fulfillment in Israel and in Christ the seed and further still in the church that continues to grow into an innumerable army. A second set of details that are of interest in our present verse are found when we read that the gnats were on the man and on the cattle. 
Now, both of those uh, nouns are in the singular and have the direct article and are being used in a collective sense. But the word rendered man is the Hebrew word Adam. Well, naturally, this sends our minds back to the early chapters of Genesis, chapter 1 in particular. The word I'm rendering cattle is also significantly found in Genesis 1. It's sometimes translated beast, but can even be rendered livestock. Now, what's the point of bringing this to your attention? Well, well, these gnats, they're attacking man and cattle, both of which were made on the sixth day of creation. So it seems we're getting another glimpse of the decreation theme that's connected with the plagues, as mentioned a few weeks ago. But even more, as the plagues are a polemic against the gods of Egypt, so in this third plague, we're witnessing a bring to a halt their religious practices to a degree. The Egyptian gods required three meals a day through the sacrifices brought by the people. But if you have a people and cattle bitten by gnats and therefore not presentable, even unclean according to the rules of their religion, and the Egyptians were a fastidious people, they were fanatical about cleanliness, well, then the gods wouldn't get fed and would go hungry. And this sharply contrasts with Yahweh, doesn't it? What does he declare through Asaph in Psalm 50? Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your ascension offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. See, Yahweh isn't like the other gods. He's not reliant on his people to feed him, to provide for him. And he's bringing judgment upon the false gods and the false religion of the Egyptians. Verse 18. And did the magicians by their secret arts to bring forth the gnats, but they were not able. And there were the gnats on man and on cattle. Now, arguably, this is the the crux of the text and maybe the reason why the details are relatively sparse for this third plague in order to highlight the failure of the Egyptian magicians. We're probably to understand that they they took their staves and beat the ground with them, but then weren't able to produce any gnats, unlike the previous two occasions with the Nile turning to blood and the plague of the frogs. You know, they always made things worse. Here they can't, and of course, the demonic forces aren't able to produce the same miracle. Of course, because Yahweh isn't allowing them to do so. You know, that's the, the systematic theology behind the text. But the text, con- the text conveys that they didn't have the ability, the, the strength. They couldn't prevail or overcome. And then we read again that the gnats are on man and on cattle. Yahweh's judgment continues and is clear. And he's exposing Egypt's idolatry and the ultimate impotence and sterility of their false gods. Verse 19. And said the magicians to Pharaoh, A finger of God this is. And was strengthened the heart of Pharaoh, and he would not listen to them as Yahweh spoke. So what are the magicians confessing when they say this was the finger of God? Well, notice what they don't say. They don't say, or they don't declare that this was the finger of Yahweh. That's worth noting. But what is conveyed with this language that it's a finger of God, or the finger of God? Well, what is a finger a part of? You know, well, it's part of the hand. And what does the hand represent in Scripture? Power. You know, just as we noted the number five earlier in 
relation to the usage of gnats and land, so your hand has five fingers. And you, you, do, thing with, you do things with your hand, right? You, you can use it to work. You can hold a tool in it, you know, whether a staff, or you can hold a sword or a hammer or a spear. You can ball up your fingers into a fist and punch someone or something. So those are various manifestations of power. So we have the magicians admitting this is God's doing, though it's debated as to how God is to be defined. It may be that they're simply saying it is not by Moses and Aaron that we are restrained, but by divine power which is greater than either. And if this is the correct line of thinking, then the further strengthening of Pharaoh's heart further hardening of his heart is argued from the perspective that it wasn't conclusively Yahweh that did it, giving him excuse not to recognize that it's Yahweh's doing. Could be. Another way to take this is that the magicians are confessing that it's the true God who has done this, and even if they don't use the name Yahweh, they're still making a somewhat orthodox statement of truth, and Pharaoh's stubbornness is just another expression of his refusal to admit what is true. Also, there's a bit of ambiguity in the text when it says of Pharaoh, he would not listen to them. Well, who are the them? The magicians? You know, that makes grammatical sense given they're the last plural subject mentioned at the beginning of the verse. Another way to take it would be that Pharaoh wouldn't listen to Moses and Aaron. This understanding is supported by the last clause, as spoke Yahweh. Now, back at the beginning of chapter 7, we read, And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. I don't know that we necessarily have to choose one or the other. Again, perhaps the ambiguity is intentional. Regardless, Pharaoh didn't listen to his magicians, nor did he listen to Moses and Aaron, none of which surprises us as the reader, since along with Moses and Aaron, we were told this is going to be the case. And while we're accustomed to the refrain of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart at the conclusion of each of these plague accounts, also notice that there's no mention of how long the plague lasted or Pharaoh asked Moses to plead with Yahweh to stop the plague or any of those other details that we've seen before. But again, certainly the omission is intentional or the omissions are intentional. And we have the details we're supposed to have. And again, the defeat of the magicians is the focal point of the text. Now, in relation to the language, the finger of God, there are a couple of other uses of it in Scripture. Later in Exodus, we read of the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments written with the finger of God. And then reference is made to this event in Deuteronomy 9. But in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 11, we read this. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute, When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided house falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons... By Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor, in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. It's reasonable to conclude that Jesus is alluding to the third plague when he employs this language, the finger of God. So what are some of the implications? Well, as one scholar notes, the power of God at work in Jesus' ministry is commensurate to the power of God at work in the great deliverance from Egypt long ago. Just as God dismantled the kingly authority of Pharaoh and his gods, or demons, and transferred his people under his own authority, so now in Jesus' ministry, Satan's kingdom is being dismantled, and Israel is being invited to embrace the divine rule. But what's another aspect of this exchange between Jesus and the audience? Unbelief. Refusal to believe the evidence, staring staring them in the face of Jesus casting out demons. Jesus, too, is dealing with hardness of heart of some of his audience, despite the fact that he's performing these signs, these miracles, right in front of their faces. Still more, the fact that Jesus is having to cast out so many demons means what? That Israel has become demon-possessed. That she is ruled by idols, false gods, and false religion. Or as we know from the early chapters of Matthew's Gospel, Israel has become an Egypt. So we should not be surprised that she's plagued by demons. And what's one of the things that Jesus does as, as a result of this? Well, he brings judgment upon them, upon Israel. You know, remember, when Jesus cleanses the temple, what's he doing? He's enacting judgment upon Israel for their false worship and how they've turned God's house into a den of insurrectionists, even viewing the temple itself as a lucky charm of sorts. And by overturning tables and driving out the sellers, what's, he's do- what's he doing? He's bringing their worship to a halt. And what do these actions of Jesus foreshadow? His coming again in AD 70 via the Roman army to destroy Jerusalem and bring Israel's idolatrous worship to an end once and for all. You know, this is what happens to idol worshipers. It happened on other occasions in Israel's history that we could enumerate, but this is where idolatry leads. Well, what are a few final thoughts for us to consider in light of our text this morning? Well, let us be all the more resolved in the truth that our God is not like other gods. That the true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has no peer or equal. And that false gods, the idols, the false ideologies of our culture that would seek to compete with God, with the God of the Bible, ought to be utterly derided on the one hand and also rightly exposed for their rebellion against the truth on the other. And as believers, as the church, let us not compromise. Let us not somehow diminish God, put him into categories of our own making, or fashion him after cultural conveniences, as though we need to apologize for what he says in his word about this or that matter. No, we must be fully committed to all of Scripture for all of life, so that it seeps down into the nooks and crannies of every facet of our being and all that we do and say. And we must continue to cultivate this kind of thinking, this kind of full-orbed thinking, not in just what we might call our personal piety, but understand that Christ's word speaks to the workplace and to the marketplace and to schooling and, yes, even politics and government. And while there are plenty of positive things which God's word has to speak, um, has to say on the matter of government and rule of law, 
So also we must be ready to decry the idolatry and abuses that are evident in our society as it's given over in its rebellion against Christ and his rule. Herbert Schlossberg, in his excellent book, Idols for Destruction, The Conflict of Christian Faith and American Culture, has a chapter entitled Idols of Power. And when the state is made an idol, especially when it takes on the role of a father, that's especially problematic. He writes the following, which is admittedly a bit lengthy, but but worth considering in the whole. The paternal state not only feeds its children, but nurtures, educates, comforts, and disciplines them, providing all they need for their security. This appears to be a mildly insulting way to treat adults, but it is really a great crime because it transforms the state from being a gift of God, given to protect us against violence, into an idol. It supplies us with all blessing, and we look to it for all our needs. Once we sink to that level, as C.S. Lewis says, there is no point in telling state officials to mind their own business. Our whole lives are their business. The paternalism of the state is that of a bad parent who wants his children dependent on him forever. That is an evil impulse. The good parent prepares his children for independence, trains them to make responsible decisions, knows that he harms them by not helping them to break loose. The paternal state thrives on dependency. When the dependents free themselves, it loses power. It is therefore parasitic on the very person whom it turns into parasites. Thus, the state and its dependents march symbiotically to destruction. When the provision of paternal security replaces the provision of justice as the function of the state, the state stops providing justice. The ersatz parent ceases executing judgment against those who violate the law, and the nation begins losing the benefits of justice. Those who are concerned about the chaos into which the criminal justice system has fallen should consider what the state's function has become. Because the state can only be a bad imitation of a father, as a dancing bear act is of a ballerina. The protection of this leviathan of a father turns out to be a bear hug. Now, Sloshberg's uh, book was published in 1990 and rings just as true today, if not more so, 30-some-odd years later. For the state to take on a messianic form, for its leaders to be deified after a fashion, even as they adopt the language of compassion because, well, they're so so self-deluded in their messianism, as believers, as the church, we must not be taken in by this false religion. Still more, we must recognize their court magicians, their priests, to be the demonic charlatans that they are and denounce them as such. You know, and we, we as the church have a calling as a priestly people, a priestly community, which means that we have access to God, and particularly the, that we can draw near in worship. And it's here that our faith is directed again to the Lord Jesus Christ, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, to whom belong honor and eternal dominion. It's here that we meet with our risen and ascended Savior, celebrating His victory, whereby the idols of this world are seen for the puny things that they are, and Satan's defeat has been secured. And here it is as well that our Good Shepherd's staff, His Word, is brought to bear upon our lives, that directs us and corrects us, that rightly warns us regarding sin and idolatry, but also provides us comfort that we need not fear any evil. And as that staff serves these purposes for God's people, 
so it is a rod of iron by which the nations are broken. Even the sharp sword by which Christ strikes down the nations, even the rod of iron by which he rules them. And that being true, God's word is not just a matter for our private lives, for our, our own personal spirituality, but it's to be brought to bear upon society, even as the gospel itself is an implicit call to obey, to bow the knee to Jesus the King. See, there are no neutral parties. Whoever is not with Christ is against him, and to be against him is to invite his judgment. This is the Christ whom we proclaim, and there's none like him. Even as he has taken the wrath and judgment we rightly deserved upon himself in order that we might have life, even abundant life, in him. So let us not be deceived by the idols of our day, but expose them for what they truly are. And be those believing Christ's word. And let us be assured that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You know, that we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Such is our calling. Even as those who comprise the, the dusty army of our Lord. And so let us continue to be renewed by him in his presence this day as he continues to strengthen and equip us for faithful service unto him. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank you for your word and and do pray that you would cause it to bear fruit in our lives that is pleasing and honoring and glorifying to you. May it make clear to us the lives that you would have us to lead. May it show us the foolishness of idolatry. And show us all the more the excellencies of Christ and the life that is to be lived in him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.